We finally got all of our kids out of university, and that joy that you hear is my wallet clapping. <laughs> and so we're thankful for the Lord's great provision, the time that we had together as a family. And I just want to thank you for your patience and bearing with us and enduring with us these past couple of weeks as there have been some changes. Look forward to spending time as well with all of you at the picnic uh, after the service ends. So I hope you made plans. We'll look forward to being together, enjoying the fresh air and God's good creation. President Calvin Coolidge invited some friends from his hometown of Plymouth Notch, Vermont, to a special dinner at the White House. And since they did not know how to behave at such an august custom, they thought the best policy would be to follow whatever the president did. So this they did at each step in the, in the dinner process. And it came time for the serving of the coffee. The president poured his coffee into a saucer. And as soon as the folks back home saw it, they did the same. And then the president began to pour some milk and some sugar into the saucer and began to stir it. And so his guests from back home began to do the same. And they thought for sure that the next step would be that the president would take the saucer and begin to sip the coffee. But he didn't. Instead, he leaned over, placed the saucer on the floor, and called the cat. <laughs> now, we have a humorous story there of what it is like to imitate someone who is in authority. And yet, we who are believers are, in fact, called to imitate one who is in authority. As we are told in the book of Ephesians, we are called to be imitators of God. Well, as we continue in our time in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is leading us through what a redeemed people look like and what a redeemed people live like. I think you'll agree that it's been a hard study, but it's been an encouraging study. As Jesus has been challenging our own hearts, as we evaluate our own behavior in light of the gospel, in light of the coming of the kingdom of heaven. Well, today we will arrive at the end of the first major part of this historic sermon. You'll recall that it began back in the beginning verses of chapter 5 with Jesus taking the role of a prophet as he went up on the mountainside and taking the position of an authoritative teacher as he sat down. And as he began to teach his apostles, teaching the new way of living, the new understanding of the law in light of the kingdom of heaven. He's taken us through the Beatitudes where he has challenged our own attitudes and actions that they might reflect more of what it means to be a new covenant people. He's taught us how to be salt and light, how to impact the culture that is around us. He's shown us that he is the goal, he is the fulfillment, he is the aim of the scriptures. Therefore, if we want to know what the scriptures say and what they mean, we need to listen to him as our great teacher. And then in chapter 5, verse 21, several weeks ago, we began to look at how Jesus was using examples from the Old Testament law and was contrasting his rightful, authoritative interpretation of the law in contrast with the evolving understandings of the Jews that had risen up over the centuries since that law had been given. And as we will see as we move through the Gospel of Matthew, that this will cause great consternation to the Jewish leaders. They thought they had the right understanding of the law, and at every turn, Jesus is challenging them. But he also, at every turn, challenges the hearts of all who hear his words. Because his word goes out, follow me, which is a command. It's not just a one-and-done step of faith. It is a lifestyle of walking in his steps, obeying him moment by moment as Lord and as Savior. And as we have seen at each step in this sermon, Jesus has turned the screwdriver another turn, making it just a little, little harder. As one commentator says, Jesus is like a good spiritual fitness trainer. Just as you think it's starting to get hard, he adds a little more weight. So the exercises get all the more difficult. And he does that to strip us of our self-reliance, of our pride, of our idea that we can lift ourselves up so that the glory would be given to him, so that the recognition would be the strength, as the hymn says, the strength to follow his command could never come from us. It must come from Christ, who is the fulfillment of the law. And so today we get to the last of this series of six examples he gives of 
understanding of the law over against the interpretation of the scribes and Pharisees. And what a command it is. Love your enemies. And perhaps this is the most difficult one of all. I think if we dive deep down into the depths of our hearts, and if you're like me, that this, this command strikes at the core of who we are. And I realize in my own life that this is probably the one I struggle to obey the most. It's a command that strikes at the heart of human rebellion. It strikes at the heart of our ability to please God in the flesh. In fact, reveals that we are utterly unable to please God in the flesh. Yet as Jesus teaches this very command, he ends with the challenge, not only that we are to love our enemies, but that we are to be like our heavenly father who has no imperfections or failures. And it's in doing that, in depending completely upon Christ, upon what he has done, upon who he is, that we can experience and indeed receive the righteousness that surpasses the scribes and the Pharisees, which is how he began this section. All may the Lord give us ears to hear. May the Lord give us hearts to receive. May he give us minds to understand. May he give us a will that bends to his perfect will. I invite you to stand for the reading of our word as we finish up this first section of the Sermon on the Mount this morning. Reading from Matthew 5, verses 43 to 48. And the inspired word of God says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your enemy, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that in your good wisdom you have given us this passage under the inspiration of your Holy Spirit. And Father, as it is part of the full counsel of God, inspired and useful for training us in righteousness, would you bring its words now to our hearts, give understanding to our minds, give enablement to our wills and hands, that we would encounter the living God, and as a result, we are changed thereby. Come and do the work that only you can do as we depend upon you now, in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Special greeting to those of you joining us online. Thank you for the opportunity to be with you as you are with us as we gather in this place around God's holy throne and around his holy word. Our first major point this morning as you follow along in your sermon outline is who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Our text begins by saying, you have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, as Pastor Brian reminded us a few weeks ago, the command to love your neighbor as yourself is clearly in the Old Testament law. It's repeated in Matthew 22, but first cited in Leviticus 19. Moreover, the Israelites, who themselves had experienced anguish, who had experienced slavery, were called at many times to help the foreigners in their land who were in need. And indeed, there are many passages that point to To such a reality. We're having a hard time advancing the slideshow here, gentlemen. <clears throat> there is no command, in fact, to hate your enemy in the Old Testament. In fact, in the very same chapter where the Israelites are told to love their neighbors as themselves, in that very same chapter, Leviticus 19, they are told to take care of the widows, the orphans, the aliens in their land. So where did this idea come then of hating your enemy? Well, let's do a little exploring. You know, there are many statements that are found in the Psalms that talk about God hating the wicked, hating the evildoer. Some examples are Psalm 5 or Psalm 11, verse 5. In fact, some commentators say there's as many as 50 examples where God has said to hate evildoers. He is told to hate the wicked. 
In addition, at many points, the Israelites were told to wipe out the wicked from the land of Canaan. You recall, as they were entering into the land, they were told to have no mercy and wipe out every last man and woman and child of the Canaanites. So apparently that meant they were to hate them, right? But thirdly, in their example of King David, who was seen as a man after God's own heart, he himself says in Psalm 139, Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? And so we might think that they use these different examples to add on to what was originally written, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I think it's helpful for us to remember at this point that in what we call the Semitic languages, this family of languages in the Middle East composed of Hebrew and Aramaic and even Arabic, they have what's called a Semitic comparative. A Semitic comparative. In these languages, the ideas of love and hate are used in comparison with one another. So to hate someone or to hate something means to love less than something else. So in that context, then we understand that God hates sinners. Yes, in the sense he he loves them because he created them and he desires their salvation. His hatred for their sin, his hatred for their sin nature, moves him to want to save them so he doesn't have to destroy them because of their sinful rebellion. As as Augustine said, God hates what sinners have done, but he loves what he has done. And what he has done is create. What he has done is send prophets. What he has done is create the opportunities for men to be saved. And so his desire that sinners be saved is its hope would overcome then his necessity to punish sin. So even if in the sense we have that we should hate sinners at a certain level, it's because we desire the glory of God, and ultimately we desire that they would come to have the same saving faith that we have, but in all things we desire that God would be glorified. Now there's another thing to consider, and that is that the Jews themselves had narrowed the understanding of the meaning of neighbor to show that it meant only for Jews alone. It excluded those with whom they disagreed or with whom they were different or with whom they disliked. The neighbors then were merely fellow Jews and could not be those Gentiles who they saw as unclean, as dirty, and worthy only of God's righteous wrath and not of his love. And so the Jews had changed the meaning of neighbor to where it was not a function of location or physical proximity, but it was a question of ethnicity. The Israelites are among us, therefore they're our neighbors, therefore we love them. Those Gentiles are not among us, they are not our neighbors, therefore we hate them. And so here in Matthew 5, and throughout the gospel according to Matthew, Jesus is going to turn the tables on that idea. We saw that way back in the beginning in the genealogies when we saw that there were four Gentile women that show up in the genealogy of Jesus. That God loves people from all around the world. God loves those that he had created in his image. Otherwise, why would he have created them in his image? He does good to them. He redeems them. He provides for them. He protects them. He blesses them. Therefore, as his children, those who have been called and set apart, who have heard the command to repent and believe, who have obeyed the command to follow Jesus, who have been redeemed by his grace, we are to look at others with the same set of eyes that God has, that all that we see and interact with are to be seen as our neighbors. Therefore, let us love as God loves. Our text goes on, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Into this world of conflict, torn apart by selfishness and pride, characterized by self-interest and pettiness, Jesus speaks with a thunderstroke that jolts all who hear it. Love your enemies. To the secularist, to the atheist, to the skeptic, to the self-righteous, to the super-religious. This command makes no sense. 
As you know, Carol and I for years had the privilege of ministering among Muslims in West Africa and the Arab Middle East. Muslims mock the idea of loving your enemies. Their own book clearly says that they are to love their own alone and they are to hate all who are not Muslims. That's man's way. But the gospel clearly goes beyond all that which is natural and human and points us to a greater need of that which is spiritual and supernatural. The gospel calls us to love our enemies, to serve those who oppose us, to pray for those who persecute us. This means putting them before us in importance. And that is something that we naturally do not ever want to do. We do not naturally ever want to put others above us. Or he goes on and he would say, overcome evil with good. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. With words that are astounding, Jesus seems to do away with any category of enemies in our daily relationships. Everyone we meet is one who can be someone who can become a friend and certainly one who is to be seen as a neighbor because in the providence of God, we have met with them. And if he is providentially guiding our lives, then it is his intention that we be a vehicle of blessing to them and therefore to treat them with love. Now, this is challenging. It's hard. It pushes us beyond our natural ability. But that's the point. Because that's what the gospel does. It always pushes us beyond our natural ability. But think about this. We do not see the beginning from the end. But God does. So we only see a person in a snapshot of time. We can't assume that the, he or she will always be an enemy of God. We cannot always know all the circumstances of their lives. We do not know whether they will repent one day or not. And so we need to treat them as neighbors. And trust God to sort it all out for his glory one day. And that's what Paul says when he wrote to the church in Ephesus that I referred to in the beginning. Be imitators of God. Paul understands what Jesus is saying here, that we are told to love our enemies. We show that love in action. And one of the ways we show that love is act in action is we pray for our enemies. It seems a little weird to pray for those who persecute us. But praying for others shows love and interest. They may mean us harm, but we pray for their well-being. As sinners touched by the mercy of God, we should be quick to extend mercies to others. And the love that we are to show is not just perfunctory. It's to involve the whole person. It's to involve attitudes and thoughts and actions. And we are warned again and again all throughout the gospel according to Matthew that Christians will be persecuted. And Jesus is preparing his disciples for such times. He says, when they persecute you, not if. The history of the church tells us that it is the norm for the church to be persecuted. If we have experienced a measure of grace and mercy that has allowed us not to be persecuted, that is not the norm in, human, in church history. That is the exception. But we have no guarantee that that exception will continue. Will we be ready then to pray for those who persecute us when it happens? We'll be ready to pray for them, seek their own good, to not retaliate, to seek to reverse the natural order of things through supernatural power. Last week, we were reminded that we're not even to resist them. Here, Jesus says, do something more powerful. Pray for them. Love them. Serve them. But our problem is, is that we, we are plagued by so much bad thinking. We're surrounded by so many ideas in our culture of selfishness and get ahead and stomp over people and get even and one-up one another. And we're affected by our own sin nature as well that seeks self-preservation and self-glory and honor and the worship of moi. As a result then, we build up grids and guidelines and tables and charts to determine the good guys from the bad guys. But if we're not careful, we can be puffed up with a sense of self-righteousness with a certain smugness of pride, maybe even intentional blindness to our own sin 
and create atmospheres of rivalries instead of being those who would be peacemakers or as we read in the scriptures just a few moments ago, seeking to live peaceably with all men. We need to constantly be aware that that we are at war with ourselves, with our sin nature. We're at war with the world that hates Christ. We're at war, war with the devil who wants to do all he can to destroy the people of God. And recognize that conflicts happen and they often happen for wrong reasons. Maybe because of questions of personal preference or unmet expectations, foolish pride, or maybe a misguided sense of merit theology. You know, I deserve better than that. But that's taking our cues from the culture around us. That's taking the cues from our, our own sin nature when we are called to a higher standard, which is the unchanging word of God. That's why the gospel is transformational. Because at every point, the gospel strikes at the heart of who we were and says, no, 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 it can't be that way. There is a new way of living, and all things must become new. And so we overcome evil with good, and then, as the word would command us, give generous love to all. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your father, in heaven, do you hear the comparison here? As we love our enemies, we're compared to the love of God for people. And how does God love? Lavishly, actively, intentionally, continually focused on what is best for the others. God loves even and in spite of the fact that men persist in enmity and anger against him. He loves and blesses and provides for those even when they continue to reject and hate him. He loves because it is good to love. And he's expressing something of his nature. And now he calls us to do the same. To love even our enemies and to pray for them. So how should we pray for our enemies? God turns his anger towards sinners into actions that will save them. And we can do the same through our actions and our prayers. We can pray that our enemies repent of their sins. They turn to Christ. They be reconciled to God. We can pray that they see the errors of their ways and turn away from them. We can pray even for those who we see as enemies in the church. Years ago, a, a dear missionary colleague shared with me, he said, I can work with anyone who knows how to repent. And I took that to heart. Because who among us does not have need to repent regularly in an ongoing manner, even daily? And so I can and we can work with those who are willing to recognize their sin, confess them, even admit them publicly, who are willing to work towards building relationships instead of tearing them down. But for those who are never wrong in their own eyes or never willing to confess their sins or it's always their way or the highway, it's difficult to work with such people. You know, God works with us when we confess our sins to him. And as we repent and as he applies the ministry of reconciliation to our lives, he works in and blesses us because he knows that we're sinners. So we need to confess our sins. You know who else knows we are sinners? We know we are sinners. So let's stop pretending. It's better to just be clean. Better to just be upright. Better to just admit it. Because others see it. And as we do that, we will do really what we are called to do, which is to confess our own sins, not our neighbors. D.L. Moody was a great missionary, pastor, evangelist, Bible teacher 100 years ago. Preached all throughout the United States, all throughout England. And D.L. Moody said this, the biggest problem I have in the Christian life is with D.L. Moody. He captures the essence that I'm the problem. You're the problem. Our biggest problem is we need to get con continue right with God ourselves, confess our own sins, and not spend so much time confessing others. And when we do that, we'll find that we have the capacity then to love our enemies. But do we love our enemies? Are we willing to be inconvenienced for the good of others? We, we might do that for a family member. We might do that for a friend. Are we willing to be inconvenienced for that person? 
So I recently heard a radio talk show host talk about a question that he has asked young people for decades. The question is this. If you were caught in a fire and you had the choice, you could either save one person that you did not know or save your dog, which would you choose? And over the years, the number has grown of those who said they would save their dog over a fellow human being created in the image of God. Now, I like dogs. Dogs are important creatures. They're just not the object of redemption. They're not created in the image of God. They don't have an eternal soul. But that enemy of mine does. And I'm willing to be inconvenienced even for my enemy. Jesus goes on and says, not only are we to pray for them, uh, to love them, we're to pray for them, and, and we want them to stop the evil that they're doing, of course. We want the Lord to be glorified. But w- do you realize when we are at praying for people, we are actually asking that they would experience and enjoy all the mercies in Christ that we ourselves have received. In Luke chapter 6, when Jesus teaches on this subject, he goes one step further. He doesn't just say, love them and pray for them. He says, do good to them and bless them when they curse you. That can only happen if we're connected to Christ. That can only happen if we are led by the Spirit of God. That can only happen as we are in tune with who we really are before God, but who He is and all that He is and how He can work in our lives. And so Jesus says, do that so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. It's the same Jesus who had earlier said, blessed are the peacemakers. It's the same idea here. You know, it's, frankly, it's easy to be a troublemaker. It's supernatural to be a peacemaker. Christians are to be peacemakers. And that includes loving their enemies. Now, let's not reverse the order here. Let's be careful. The loving of our enemies is the result of being the sons of God. It is not the cause of it. It is not in loving our neighbors that we become the sons of God, that we become Christians, as if somehow we could earn that right. No, it is in loving others that we show that we are Christians, that we are the sons of God. And to the extent that we fail to do that reveals a problem or a lack in our own lives. May God help us to know what that lack is and what we need to change about and what we need to repent from. But do you desire to love your enemy? Do you desire their well-being or do you just simply want to be right and to get your own way? So here's the good news of the gospel. It is those who are in Christ that are not only commanded to love their enemies, but they are able to do so because of the indwelling Spirit of God. So it is peacemakers who show that they are the sons of God. They are the ones who work to love their enemies, to pray for them, to serve them, to do good to them, to in fact win them over because the goal is that they also would become friends. The gospel does have a strategy for winning. It's just different than the strategy of the world. For the gospel to defeat your enemy, you love him. And in loving him and in serving him, perhaps you will lose him as an enemy and gain him as a friend. Do we really believe that love conquers all? And it's in that that we're commanded to be like Jesus. Because it's something that God does in us. It happens by grace. But it's something that is also commanded. We we are no longer to look at people as categories. And then judge people accordingly. Because that's not what God does. What does God do? He makes his son to rise on the evil and the good. And sends rain on the just and on the unjust. What an amazing statement. It's what we call common grace. It's the general grace of God that is given to all. In the sun, in the rain, in strength, and in food, in the wind, in the trees, in gravity, and provisions, and the seasons of nature, and all these things that come from God. 
And notice that the weather is not something that just happens as if it's somehow according only to the laws of nature, almost outside of God's control. Notice closely in the text, it says that God, the Father causes His Son to shine on the evil and the good. It's something He actively chooses to do. He makes his blessings to fall upon all, even on those who regularly reject him, who hate him, who actively work against him. And so the call goes out then that we are to love as God loves. And how do we do that? Well, we need to love beyond the norm. It's true that God gives his son to all. It's also true that not all will respond in the same way. We know that the sun that melts the ice can harden the clay. We know that a person can receive common grace, and many do, day after day, common grace of health and provision and joy and family and love and health and strength and harden their hearts against the things of God. We know that it is God who gives the very breath that we breathe, each breath, but it is often those who don't know God, they turn around with that very same breath and they blaspheme his name or they curse his servants or they exalt him themselves above the one who created them. And yet what does God do? God keeps on showing his love. You may have experienced it in a measure where you have shown love and friendship to someone and all you got in return was spite. Well, you're in good company, because that's what God does. God loves those and blesses those who will never praise him for it. He blesses and, and provides for those who will be his enemies. Now think about this. Aren't we glad that he did that for us? The Bible's very clear that we were his enemies, without hope and without God. We didn't desire the things of God. We surely didn't want to serve him, but God, who is rich in mercy, made his mercies known to us in Christ, gave us eyes to see, gave us a heart of flesh, removing our heart of stone, and sent Jesus to a cross to bear the wrath that we deserve in kindness. While we were still his enemies, Christ died for us. So we who were his enemies have now become his friends. And God would call us to do the same for others. But we need to be careful. The people of Israel received mercy upon mercy and grace upon grace, and they used it as an opportunity to further divide themselves from their neighbors, becoming proud and puffed up as if somehow they felt like they were worthy of God's grace, but not those dirty dogs empire. Let's not become like that. If you find yourself in God's grace this morning, you know it is only because of his mercy and because of nothing beautiful that was in me. And with that same tenderness of heart and a recognition of God's mercy towards you, you can go out and be merciful to others. Far from having the spirit of Jonah, which just wants to watch the judgment on the wicked, we're to have the attitude of the one greater than Jonah who weeps over the wicked and pleads with them to come to repentance. And so we are to love beyond the norm, which means we're to love beyond your own kind. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you love those who love you, Jesus says, big deal. The worst of sinners do that. And that's what the tax collectors were considered in that day, the worst of sinners. Who are the worst of sinners today? Do we see the worst of sinners, those who, uh, they're from that other political party. Those who are from the wrong side of the tracks or the wrong part of town those who are caught up in the alphabet soup of sin that is plaguing our culture. What about those abortionists? 
have the blood of 63 million babies on their hands. I think if Jesus were here today, he'd say, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Even the abortionists do the same. In his book, The Grace of Giving, Pastor Stephen Olford tells about a Baptist minister during the American Revolution by the name of Peter Miller. He lived in Pennsylvania. He was a personal friend of President George Washington, but he had a, an enemy named Michael Whitman, who in the words of Pastor Miller, did all he could to oppose and humiliate me. And one day, Michael Whitman was arrested for treason and sentenced to die. And Peter Miller walked 70 miles on foot to Philadelphia to plead for the life of the traitor, asking the president for clemency. No, Peter, General Washington said, I cannot grant you the life of your friend. My friend, exclaimed the old preacher, he's the bitterest enemy I have. What, cried Washington, you walked 70 miles to save the life of an enemy? That puts the matter in a different light. I will grant your pardon. And with that, Peter Miller took Michael Whitman back home to central Pennsylvania, no longer as an enemy, but as a friend. The love of Christ, my friends, moves us to love beyond our own kind. The worst of sinners, that they might become friends one day as well. Moreover, the grace of God moves us to love beyond our own words. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? So not only are we to love our enemies and pray for them, we are to greet them with respect and honor. The, the word here is shalom, which in Hebrew is more than just a greeting. It is a prayer. It is a prayer for the all-around well-being of the person, that you may be blessed and at peace and at rest and well in all areas of your life. If you only greet like-minded people in that way, how is that of any value? If you only greet the ones with whom you are comfortable, Jesus says, how are you different than any run-of-the-mill pagan? There is no reward in loving only those who love you. For even those that we see as inferior, love their children and greet their families. Love is what is doing what is best for the other person. And at this point, if you're like me, as I was going through this passage, I was undone. Lord, what can I do? My heart is so full of junk that needs to continually be cleansed out. What can I do, Lord? Well, here's some pastoral things to consider. First, we need a new heart. The new birth enables us to love others when we would rather not. This is a divine work. It's a divine command that requires a divine work which has a divine provision. We love because he first loved us. Secondly, when we see our failure, we need to repent and turn away. To turn away from those times when we close off people too quickly when we should open up to them. When we just stick with our circles when we're called to reach the world. When we'd rather stay in our comfortable huddles instead of engaging with those around us who need us to engage with them and draw them in. Third, because we are undone, because we are unable, we need to call on the Lord to fill our hearts with his love. That we might love as God loves. It's a recognition that God can command whatever he pleases and expect us to obey. But in, that, in response to that, we recognize, I can't, Lord, unless you enable me. So fill me with your heart, with your love, that I can love others. And then he will do that. And then we need to obey. Willingly, a decision of the will. There's no getting around it. We must obey God. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. It's not about my sense of comfort or my pride, or my being right, or my getting my own way. It's about losing my life, which is what Jesus called me to do. Give up my life that I might find it. That others might know who Jesus is. And so, as a very practical step, I'm going to ask all of us to consider taking the 30-day challenge. I have no doubt 
that right now before God, all of us see the need that we have for God. I have no doubt that five years from now, we want to look back and say, I began to grow in this area from that moment. I have no doubt that some, everybody wants to grow. Nobody wants to stay in a level of stagnation. But it's going to require some effort. So what is the 30-day challenge? Later today, I want you to spend some time with the Lord, just you and the Lord and a piece of paper. And I want you to make a list of your enemies. Those you don't get along with. Those you may not particularly like. Those to whom you would really like to give a piece of your mind to. Before you do that, put them on the list. Just you and the Lord know this list. And then every day, for 30 days, a few minutes in the morning, a few minutes in the evening, pray by name for the people on your list. Pray for their well-being. Pray for their spiritual growth. Pray that they would grow in their understanding of the scriptures. Pray for their family. Pray for their needs. Pray for them. Bless them. And as the Lord brings things to mind, act upon them. Or just send an encouraging text. Drop them a note. Give them a gift. Pay them a visit. Whatever. And after 30 days, without ceasing, every day, morning and evening, it's going to be hard. Your tendency is going to be to lapse after about the third or fourth day. Stick with it. And then at the end of 30 days, see your heart. As I was thinking about this, this week, this particular project, and who's going to be on my list, I'm also praying that out of this would come a wonderful revival in our church. Of love for each other, of love for Christ, of love for the lost, of a desire to be a light shining on a hill, to be a blessing to the community of Oregon. So I commend it to you, the 30-day challenge. My last point today is heavenly perfection. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So here's the rub. You want to get to heaven? Be perfect. God is in heaven and he is perfect. You want to be with him? You must be perfect. So what does this mean? I think it's at least a command and a promise. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, Jesus said that he has a righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees. That's what he's referring to here. <coughs> there is only one type of righteousness that will bring someone into the kingdom of heaven. The righteousness of Christ. In Matthew 5, 48, right here at the end of this section, Jesus commands his people to be perfect. To emulate God. To become like Jesus in all that we do. And so that's why I say I see this as a command, as a promise, and I would say even as a process. We are commanded to be like God. Children become like their parents. We even have the saying, like father, like son. Well, in the ultimate sense, that is what we are to become. Like God, as his children. It's a command. You, therefore, must be perfect. But I think it's also a promise. Because all throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has brought us to the end of ourselves to realize that ultimately it's all about Christ. And so we have the promise then that God finishes what he started. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion to the day of Christ Jesus. God wrote to the, or Paul wrote to the church in Rome and John wrote to the churches of his day that it is the desire and will of God that we become like Jesus Christ. And he will not fail. And so he gives the command, it is a promise, and, and what I see is a process, it's what we call sanctification. Sanctification is just a fancy word, it means becoming holy. Becoming holy in our behavior and in our attitudes. And in that process, which is daily, which is moment by moment, which requires holy sweat and obedience, we become more like Christ in our daily walk. 
God is working in us so that we will work and become more like Christ. Now, the word that is actually here behind the word perfection is teleos, which means maturity or completion. And so some try to skirt around this verse by saying, well, it's not really saying be perfect like God. It's, it's be, be mature or be complete. But I don't see how that helps. Because let's say, okay, it's not saying be perfect. It's saying be m- mature. Be as mature as God is mature. Be as complete as God is complete. Do you still see we come up short in our own power? And it still is a result of completely depending upon him. And so let me just throw two words of theology at you this morning as we wrap up. Imputation and impartation. These words are different, but they help us to understand this process of the command of the promise and the process. You see, at the moment that we believe, the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us. That's why Paul can say, being found in him, having a righteousness not of my own, but a righteousness that comes by faith. As God looks at us, he sees that we are clothed in Christ, and he declares us holy. He declares us not guilty. He declares us just. That's what justification means. Therefore, then, we are holy in our position before God. But God finishes what he starts. As we learn in the word, as we grow, as we obey, as we have holy sweat in our obedience, uh, we become in practice in what we are in our position. And in that word sanctification, God imparts to us the holiness of Christ. We actually become more holy in our words, in our actions, in our attitudes, in our thoughts. We overcome sin. We grow in obedience. We become more fruitful. So when Jesus gives the command, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, he says it will be done. As I work in and through you, through my Holy Spirit, you will become more like me. That's what Jesus says. And because it's our Father, it means that he draws near to us, that we would fall into his arms and say, make me like you. That it is heavenly means that it's a righteousness that is not from this world. Or from this way of living. But from from the very presence of heaven itself. Now years ago in my own spiritual journey. As I reflected on these truths. Yes I'm I'm, I'm holy. I'm perfect in the sight of God because of Christ. But in my practice I'm not. But one day both of those things will come together. I will be perfect in my practice. I will be perfect in my position. And what I long to be is what I will be one day. But that struggle goes on within my soul, and so I coined the phrase content but not satisfied. I'm content in Christ because he has made me, he has saved me, he's given me eternal life. My contentment is in Christ. But I'm not yet satisfied because I'm not yet all that I will be. I'm not satisfied when I see sin that's still in my soul. I'm not satisfied when sin spills off my lips. I'm not satisfied when sin still percolates in my heart. And because of the holiness that God has given to me, I want to confess my sin, renounce it, put to death the deeds of the flesh, overcome it, stop committing the same sin over and over again. And I don't try to justify it. I call it what God calls it. And therefore then, in this content but not satisfied, as I strive toward holiness, I and each one of us will fulfill this command of being perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The teaching to love your enemies cuts to the core of who we are as the sons of God. It challenges the very essence of who we are. Our nature wants to hold grudges, not forgive, not forget. Not be willing to love, waiting for the other to make the first move. But those are not actions consistent with the kingdom of heaven. It's certainly not what Jesus did. He came to earth. He made the first move. He came to show love to his enemies. He prayed for them. He did good to them. They beat him, humiliated him, and hung him on a tree. And he said, Father, forgive them. As he prayed for them. As they persecuted him. 
And he calls us to do the same. He modeled for us what he now commands us to do. Let's hear the testimony from the words of the Apostle Paul, Romans chapter 5. For why we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that why we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Jesus did what he now commands us to do. So what are we to do? Repent. Turn to the Lord. Obey him. The sermon will begin to shift a little bit in its focus now as Jesus will turn towards spiritual and religious activities of those who claim to be in the kingdom of heaven. But as we get ready for that pivotal turn beginning in chapter 6, what are some lessons we can learn for today? Because God loved us first before we loved him, we will trust in his power to love those who do not love us. Secondly, because God loved us while we were still his enemies, we will love and pray for those who are our enemies today. Thirdly, because God's common grace falls upon all, we will see other people as valuable and seek to serve them with God's love. And fourthly, because our hearts rebel against obedience, we will repent of our stubbornness and take steps to show love to our enemies. And lastly, because being perfect is a command and a promise, we will submit to God's power and control so that we grow to become more like him. Let us pray. Father, you have given us a good word, a sure word, a difficult word, and if we try to accomplish it in the flesh, it's an impossible word. But thank you that you have brought us to the end of ourselves to show us the unlimited power and nature of Christ, who is able to do all things through us for his glory. And so, Father, my prayer for each one of us is that as you beckon us into your presence later today, and as each of us work on our list for this 30-day challenge, that we would not have resistant hearts, but repentant hearts. That we would not have stubborn wills, but wills that bend the knee and say, yes, God, help me to obey your word. And we will trust you to lead us in the steps ahead, in the days ahead, in the weeks ahead. Oh, Father, would you do the work that only you can do, and may you get the glory that only you are due, as you cleanse us and as you work in us, for the glory of Jesus, and for our well-being in him. In his name we pray.